something the podcast where I have a question then I research that question and probably proceed down several rabbit holes uh, during that time and after that I can tell you all the cool parts I'm Melissa and I'm Everett so speaking of having a question okay this episode and well the next one now <laughs> um, as is tradition was inspired by uh, one specific question okay in which I was thinking, why don't mosquitoes transmit HIV or the flu or, you know, every other thing yeah. that can be in your blood? And I was I was thinking, why have I never thought of this before? So I did. And then I looked it up. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it's, there's some detours and some tangents that I will uh, present to you. But it's just... Uh, very cool stuff. I think it's pretty fascinating. So this episode, part one, just a whole lot of interesting things about mosquitoes. Okay. And Very then good. part two, next episode in a few weeks. More interesting things? Definitely interesting things, okay. but not so much about mosquitoes as much as about the diseases they give you. Okay. Specifically. Fair enough. Well, how about you teach me something? Okay, great, because I want to start with some fun facts about mosquitoes. Fun. I don't know. I put a question mark after fun. <laughs> fun? We'll see facts? if you think they're fun. Okay. Um, so, there is somewhere around 3,500 species of mosquitoes. Very fun. Uh, the word mosquito is Spanish for little fly. More fun than the other fact. Did you know there's a World Mosquito Day? No. I don't know why. And what do you do on it? Get bit by mosquitoes? Ooh, no, I don't want to participate. Kill mosquitoes? Still, no. I okay. don't really want to per participate in either of those activities. Well, then find something else to do on August 20th, I suppose. Dress up like a mosquito? Run around buzzing? You could do those things if that makes you happy. Happier than the first two suggestions, yeah. Um, There are about 110 trillion mosquitoes in the world. Okay. Which means that for every person, there are 14,000-ish mosquitoes yeah, to bite that person. A few. Well, I'm just kidding. They're not all there to bite people. But they could. No, not all of them. No, you couldn't get 14,000 onto one person? Oh, that's a challenge I will not accept. Okay. Um, not even on Mosquito Day. <laughs> not even on Mosquito Day. Wow, okay. A group of mosquitoes has two names. One is boring. It's a swarm of mosquitoes. Oh, yeah, it's that's kind of boring. Like, yeah. The other is a scourge. A sc scourge? Scourge. Scourge of yeah. mosquitoes. I, for a second, I forgot how I said that word. That's okay. We got there eventually. <laughs> it's a much better name um, for them. It's, yeah, it's a good description. According to the University of Alaska, the oldest mosquito fossil is from 79 million years ago. Uh, but scientists think mosquitoes could be like 100 to 200 million years old. The upper sure. estimate I read was 226 million years old. And this original fossil encased in amber yeah. with dinosaur blood in it? Probably not that. I oh. don't know. I don't know what blood You're it may, or may not have had. Okay. Yeah. 
And whatever blood it did have probably had a lot more holes in the DNA than Jurassic Park would have It's okay, you just need amphibians. Believe. Yeah. Yeah. Very few of which change sex. Okay, I'm still mad this. <laughs> why would you pick one that... And why would an amphibian relate in any way to a dinosaur? They should have used a chick... Ugh, scales? I'm still mad about this. Amphibians don't have scales. They breathe through their skin. They can't have scales come... Oh my god. Okay. No, I'm not... I'm... <laughs> Stop distracting me. Yeah, let's do a podcast. <laughs> oh, mosquitoes were not always found all around the world, believe it or not. They're from the old world. Okay. And then maybe like the late 1400s, certain disease carrying mosquitoes, like some Anopheles species, that's the malaria ones, came to the US on some trading ships from Africa and the Caribbean. And then like other mosquitoes that cause really bad disease, like some of the 80s uh, genus. Actually, we think they just came to North America from Asia in, like, the 1980s. Wow. Um, through a ship carrying tires. How dare Okay. They? Interesting. No, I hate tires. I'm just uh, kidding. Apparently, yeah. Um, and as climate change continues, they're going to start creeping up into Canada and giving us all yellow fever, too. Fun. So, now for some probably less fun um, biology-type facts. Okay. Um, mosquitoes are arthropods. You probably really? could have guessed that. Yes. Arthropods. Arthropods. What's the definition of arthropod again one more time? It's a phylum of invertebrates, which contains everything you would possibly think of as an insect or a bug or okay. a crab or a lobster. Oh, or that, a... that wide. Okay. Yes. Yeah, phylums, phylums are very, very general. Okay. Um, they're in the insect class. They're in the order Diptera. So they're true flies. They're just flies. Um, they're the family Colichidae, and there are two subfamilies, Anophilinae and Colichinae. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in, in English, I think you say Colicinae and Colicidae, but that's improper Latin, so I have a hard time, like, mm. I have a hard time with it. But anyways, like most insects, mosquitoes, they have compound eyes, which means they don't really focus their, they don't use their eyes to find their meals, the eyes are mostly just there so they can detect movements. And they're very good at detecting quick movements, which is why they're so hard to swap. Mm, okay. Um, the mosquito wings beat about 1,000 times per second, which is what creates that high pitch buzzing sound. And a female mosquito's wings create a higher pitch tone than males, which really? helps it attract mates. Okay. To it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all types of mosquitoes have the, the typical insect uh, life cycle that you know of. They lay eggs. Mosquitoes case in water. Yeah. Um, but it can be just in a little bit of water. It can be like, you know, in a little divot in the road. Like it doesn't have to be very much water, which is the tough part. Um, then, you know, they hatch, make a larva. The larva becomes a pupa. Then an adult emerges from that. They live from two weeks to six months, depending on the type of mosquito. And female mosquitoes live longer than males. Hmm. So all mosquitoes, both male and female, use the proboscis to feed on like flower nectar, sap, fruit juices, all that stuff. Yep. And about 75% of feces, species, Hmm. (laughs) what are you trying to equate them to here? Yeah, right. The female mosquitoes also are going to feed on blood. Okay. Um, But they don't just feed on blood is what I'm trying to tell you. And, and I think what you were trying to say there was there was about 25% of species that that don't. don't, Yeah, right. Yeah. They're Okay. We can be friends with those guys. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the male's proboscis just isn't even strong enough to pierce skin. Oh, you okay. You can pierce 
a stem of a plant or something, but yeah. not skin. Um, the female needs the blood, as you probably know, for her eggs. She needs the protein specifically of the blood. And uh, she can lay up to 300 eggs with one blood meal. Um, and again, this is probably something you know, but mosquitoes have a preference. Some mosquitoes prefer cold-blooded animals. Some prefer amphibians. Some prefer birds, mammals, etc., etc. Um, and I did mention earlier, mosquitoes are pretty old. Uh, old. You did. As a, as a class. Um, so how did it happen that some evolved to prefer biting us? Because we're pretty new. I mean, at least compared to mosquitoes. Sure. They did this study. Um, because, you know, they're like, some mosquitoes specialize in biting humans, and why? Why is that? And no one really investigated that. So recently, they did this study on uh, Aedes aegypti, which is a mosquito that gives us a lot of terrible diseases. Um, and they specialize in biting humans. Wonderful. It's so, a good combination. <laughs> Um, some African populations of the species have a wider diet, though. Don't just bite humans. So what's the difference, really, is what they're investigating. Um, and so they captured eggs from 27 different sites in sub-Saharan Africa, raised them in a lab, and they built this model to kind of see what affects their preferences, their diet preferences. And so basically, if they lived in areas where the dry season was long and intense, then they're going to prefer humans. Um... Because their species of mosquito, you know, it really depends on standing water. And, okay. And I know I said that they only need water for their eggs, but not every species of mosquito is the same. Some can go into estivation where they can just dry out and wait for water to come. Okay. And then, like, reactivate themselves. Sure. But Aedes aegypti can't do that. So they need water and they need it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So what they do is they find humans because we're really great at creating sources of standing water. That does make sense, yeah. You know, rainwater in barrels, something for crops. Irrigation, You yeah. know, exactly. I, I did write that right there. Did you read my paper? No. Mm, of course. So mosquitoes basically evolved to bite us because we make water appear for them. Uh, there's a small effect of urbanization. They found mosquitoes in cities tend to prefer humans over other animals. Um, and, and it kind of suggests that it's going to become an issue because Africa is becoming a lot more urbanized. Sure. Yeah. So we're going to have more concentrations of these mosquitoes trying to bite humans more. And like I said, they give us a ton of terrible diseases. Yeah, not good. Not malaria, but like all the other ones. Zika, yellow fever, dengue, all that, all that good stuff. Mm, good um, stuff. <laughs> so since, like I said, the whole next episode is going to be about like the viruses and parasites the mosquitoes give us, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it here, but I can't not say it. I have to mention them, I think. Right. Um, and to be fair to the mosquitoes, most mosquito species are harmless uh, to us. <laughs> it's just that the harmful ones are super harmful. Uh, the most dangerous mosquitoes are in the Anopheles, Aedes, and Culex genera. So, like I said, Aedes aegypti spreads like Zika, Dengue, Yellow Fever, Lymphatic Filariasis, etc., etc. Uh, Anopheles are the malaria ones. Um, so... Here are diseases we can get from mosquitoes. The virus ones. We'll start with the, vir the viral ones. Um, so the Cache Valley virus disease, uh, chikungunya, dengue fever, eastern equine encephalitis, Jamestown Canyon virus, Japanese mm. encephalitis, lacrosse encephalitis, Rift Valley fever, Ross River virus, 
St. Louis encephalitis, West Nile virus, yellow fever, and Zika virus. Can all. A couple. Just a few. And then there are the parasites. As well. Which you're going to classify separately here. Well, they're different. Okay. Good. Um, So they can give us uh, dirofilariasis, lymphatic filariasis, which is also called elephantiasis, and it's gross, but we'll talk about that next week. Um, Malaria. Mm. And myiasis. Malaria is parasitic. I'm I didn't know sure that. Sure, you knew that. Um, I spent maybe so at one long point in my life. About parasites. I love parasites. Well, I it's hate true. them, but I love them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a protozoan. I think I mentioned that when oh. we talked about yes, that just sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a parasite. Okay, I'm on the same page as you. It's okay. Next time, guys, we'll get into it. But also, you can check out our episode on toxoplasmosis. True, you can do that. So. Here's where we answer my question that inspired these episodes. Why not other viruses and parasites and stuff? So what I was thinking before I did my research is if mosquitoes are basically a flying hypodermic needle, why don't they pass on almost every contagious illness like, you know, needle sharing disease? Like, I don't get that. Like, specifically, I was thinking HIV hepatitis was my um, first questions. So the first thing I got wrong is that mosquitoes are not like a flying hypodermic needle. Okay. Yeah. So from afar, the mosquito proboscis might look like a single tube, but it's it's not. It's a few of them encased in a sheath called the labium. Inside the labium, there are six mouth parts. Okay. So when it goes to bite, the labium moves out of the way. And so th- there's a pair of mandibles and a pair of maxillae. And those are, like, just thin filaments to help pierce the skin. Okay. And um, so the maxillae end in tooth blades, which are going to grip the flesh. And then it can kind of push against that. And the large central needle part is made up of two tubes. The hypopharynx, which is what sends saliva down, and the labrum, which is what pumps blood up. Okay. So when a mosquito um, finds the host, uh, it's going to probe around for a blood vessel. It often takes several attempts and a couple minutes to find one. So um, just be aware of mosquitoes. Hmm. You can get them. You can get them. And then it takes like four minutes on average for them to, to eat the meal that they, that they need. Um, and also the one study they did, like half of them failed to find a blood vessel at all. Um, so they're really? not that great at what they do. Yeah. It's just that there's 14,000 of them for every one of you. So Okay. You know. So they've got the odds. In right? their favor. Yeah. So, but the important part of all of this is that the food canal, um, the labrum, is not flushed out like a used needle would be. Blood flow is always unidirectional. Right. Right? Um, the two-tube system is is one reason why they can't transmit things like HIV and hepatitis, because only saliva is injected into you, um, not like remnants of blood from their last meal or something. Right. Right. Another important thing to note is that most disease-causing agents can't survive the mosquito's digestive system. That's what I was going to So, but we know there are lots of things they can, right? So how do they do that? Well, again, I'm not going to get too far into it, but like some are resistant to the digestive enzymes in the mosquito's stomach. Most kind of tunnel their way out of the stomach as quickly as possible to avoid the enzymes and not have to worry about that. Um, for instance, plasmodium parasites, they can actually survive inside the mosquito for nine to 12 days and they go through a necessary part of their life cycle in there. Um, 
encephalitis virus particles survive 10 to 25 days inside a mosquito replicating replicating and all that stuff. So if the virus or parasite isn't made to replicate basically inside the mosquito or get away from its, you know, enzymes or get to their salivary glands where they're injected at all, it's not going to work out. Like, so HIV in a human is going to start to bind to T cells and replicate in there, but no T cells exist in a mosquito's gut. Um, so it has no way of replicating, no way of migrating to the salivary glands. Um, studies with HIV clearly show us that the virus is digested along with the blood meal and they're both, you know, the blood and the HIV destroyed in one to two days. Yeah. Okay. So likewise, hepatitis viruses are very picky about what they infect and where they can survive and they really like livers. And if you didn't know, mosquitoes don't have a liver. So there you go. Right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) A third factor is that mosquitoes can't transfer disease if they don't ingest enough viral particles. Okay. So the exact number of infectious particles needed to transmit an illness is going to vary from one disease to another, right? HIV, for example, um, actually circulates at very low levels in a person's blood, an infected person's blood, um, well below the level of any of the actual mosquito-borne diseases we know about. So HIV-infected individuals usually have like 10 or less units of HIV circulating, uh, 70 to 80% of HIV-infected persons have undetectable levels of the virus in their really? circula- particles circulating in their blood. Okay. Um, and so, okay. So let's just say a mosquito is feeding on someone with HIV and the feeding was interrupted, meaning that like they maybe still had a little bit of blood in and around the outside of the mouth or something and they had to go bite a new person right away because they weren't done feeding. Mm-hmm. Like we're just making up a scenario in which like, what well, what yeah. if this happened? Maybe... Um, okay, so calculations show us that if a mosquito is feeding on an HIV carrier that had a thousand units of circulating HIV, um, which as we've said is it's a lot, right? Rid- ridiculous and doesn't happen. Okay. Um, it would only have a one in 10 million probability of injecting a single unit of HIV to a new recipient. Wow. Okay. And that's not going to infect anyone with HIV. And if we use the same calculations, let's say you crushed a fully engorged mosquito containing HIV positive blood against you or accidentally swallowed one or any of the scenarios you could possibly concoct, you would not even begin to approach the level needed to initiate an infection in your body. So, yeah, you cannot get these things from a mosquito. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Um, Okay, so speaking of being dangerous... Okay. As a person that reads the internet, mm, I dangerous. have seen enough things that say that the mosquitoes are the most deadly animal. Uh, yeah. Okay, I have heard that. Yeah. And I've even read most of them say things like they kill more people than humans do hmm. through murders and wars and such. You know, the most deadly animals, humans. I'm skeptical. Right. Well, you should be because it's... it's BS. Okay. So here's the thing, is that if we look at this clearly, they're they're obviously in second place hmm. to humans. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously humans are the most deadly animal to humans. Because people that are making these like claims and infographics are including all of the diseases mosquitoes transmit to humans. And then for for as far as humans killing other humans, they're only including murder and Warfare and such. Transmutable diseases, which we're terrible with. 
Exactly. So yes, there's Jonathan Isaac, who's a biologist at uh, University of California, Davis, has kind of gone on the internet and ranted about this. <laughs> if we're going to count all the diseases mosquitoes give us, then we should probably also include the diseases humans give other humans, like HIV, which kills 1.8-ish million people a year, or tuberculosis, you know, 1.34 million people per year. We could even say things like pollution and, you know, just there's, it's endless and humans are definitely the most dangerous animal at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, in another edition of Don't Believe Everything You Read on the Internet, the internet likes to also say that malaria has killed half the people that have ever lived. That sounds drastically high. So... A claim that might be slightly more plausible that I found is that mosquito-borne diseases have killed close to half of all people who have lived. That still seems the majority really high of which to me. are young children. Okay. So that fact is actually argued by Canadian historian Timothy Weingard in his book *The Mosquito: A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator*, where he argues mosquito-transmitted illnesses have killed an estimated 52 billion people out of the 108 billion total human beings that have probably lived. That yeah. Just okay. seems really high. Well, here's where we get to the debunking. Okay. So BBC journalist Tim Harford was also skeptical. Um, and so for his podcast, more or less, he interviewed Professor Brian Farger. I'm so sorry, Brian. I'm probably saying your name wrong. Emeritus Professor of Medical Statistics at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Sounds like a good person to interview about this. It sure does, yeah. So he explains that it's indeed a widely published claim, but it's very hard to find the source or any supporting evidence. Um, its earliest appearance is actually, unfortunately, in a Nature article, like the journal Nature, yeah. in 2002. Oh, well, it's um, very recent. Where, well, I suppose. I mean, 20 years ago, but in the history of us doing science, that's pretty yeah, but recent. it's not in the history of the internet that's not that recent. The internet's that's not true. that old. Oh, anyways, the article says, quote, malaria may have killed half of all the people that ever lived, and it's not even referenced. I can't believe they accepted this in Nature. It's hmm. not referenced. So what uh, Professor Farger goes on to say is that in that same year, two researchers wrote an article called The Evolutionary and Historical Aspects of the Burden of Malaria, which was published in the journal Clinical Microbiology Reviews. And they wrote, at some time during the 19th century, malaria reached its global limits. In absolute numbers and in the proportion of the humanity now affected, malaria was exacting its highest ever toll of sickness and death. Well over one half of the world's population was at significant risk from malaria. Of those directly affected by malaria, at least one in ten could expect to die from it. So, if we use those numbers, maybe we can have a better estimate, is what the professor is saying. Even if you just left it at one in ten could expect to die from it, there's no way that it could be 50% of the entire population. Exactly. Exactly. This is the debunking part, yeah. not the part where there's. I know. I'm it. just saying, even that one comment. Right. So, if all the world's population in 1900 contracted malaria, the death toll would have been like 100 million, and that would have, you know, it would have taken 540 more years like that to then get us to 54 billion or whatever. Um, so, what Professor Farragher estimates. I don't know. He estimates it's probably somewhere between 4 and 5% of all the people that have ever lived on this earth have died of malaria. 
which is staggering. That's still a lot. Four to five percent of all the people that have ever lived probably have died of malaria. Holy cow. Yeah, we'll talk more about malaria next time. Um, What does seem indisputable, though, is the way mosquitoes have changed history. Okay. So in the last few years, mosquitoes have killed around one million people a year which thankfully is much lower than the 20th century's average annual death toll of 2 million. Yeah. We're kind of in um, one of humanity's sweet spots right now where the weather in malaria endemic uh, areas is bad for mosquitoes, relatively bad, and the newest anti-malarial drugs are still effective. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. But we've seen that pattern before, and it's, you know, the whole arms race thing. All of a sudden, they're going to stop working and we're going to have to figure something else out. Um, you know, Plasmodium parasite is very good at adapting. Uh, so historians and scientists believe that it was actually the development of agriculture that made malaria such a threat. Sure. As with many other diseases. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, that's a common story. So around 8,000 years ago, Bantu yam farmers started expanding their territory in West Central Africa, bringing a new host animal within the reach of the falciparum variant of Plasmodium. So the Vivax variant of malaria remains the most common in the world, especially outside Africa. It's actually responsible for 80% of the annual cases, but only 5% of the deaths from malaria. Falciparum, on the other hand, has a fatality rate 25 to 50% range. That's huge. It's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. So within 700 years of this, the sickle cell mutation appeared in humans in that area. So that results in crescent-shaped red blood cells that plasmodium can't enter into. Again, we'll talk more about how plasmodium works uh, next episode. Um, but the cost of this is, is high. So before modern medicine, those who inherited one single cell gene just from one of their parents, they did have about 90% immunity to falciparum, but they are going to have a shortened lifespan. They would die at the average age of 23 from sickle cell anemia. Wow. Yeah, that's a If you inherited off. sickle cell genes from both your parents you'd usually die as an infant. So the crescent-shaped blood cells just can't carry enough oxygen is the problem. Right. Um, but that mutation wouldn't have stuck around if it wasn't a net benefit to the human species. So the difference between dying before age 5 of malaria or around age 20 of sickle cell is you did have the opportunity to reproduce. Yeah. So it that speaks to just how lethal malaria was that that mutation stuck around and was beneficial. Right. Yeah. And sickle cell is not the only anti-malaria mutation that arose. So it seems around 10% of the population currently, like of the world, currently has some genetic protection against malaria through these mutations. Wow. Um, And these protections all cause some serious, even fatal health issues, just like sickle cell does. Like, for instance, the blood disorder thalassemia. Um, So, like mosquitoes by way of malaria like plasmodium have actually changed our, our dna it's changed the fitness for people that have would you call these diseases or yeah i mean um there's a whole thing that i won't get into now but i want to about how being um heterogeneous at, at a uh, like at a location so having one sickle cell and one not mm-hmm. is, is it, like that kind of condition is almost always beneficial to humans. Anyways, um, so again, it's it just speaks to how bad these things are that 
these kinds of mutations, which should be deleterious and harmful to our species, right. are actually coming out ahead of not having them at all. Like, it's just, it's crazy to me. Yeah. Um, beyond just, like, the physical aspects, malaria has left other historical marks in the old world. Let's start with the old world. Okay. So many historians believe, and I don't know how I didn't know this, but the death of Alexander the Great at the age of 32 was caused by malaria. Sure. I yeah. didn't know that, but okay. So, and that's clearly changed history. If I mean, he would have lasted for longer, what would have been different? I'm sure there's a number of cases where it's like X person who was historically significant who died of malaria. I mean, therefore, if four or five percent of people that ever lived died of malaria, then yeah. Yeah. Um, the Pontine marshes outside Rome were just rife with malaria-causing mosquitoes. I could see that. So these marshes aided the Roman Republic in its struggle with Hannibal. Okay. They were an absolutely crucial protection for the medieval papacy as they didn't have a very strong military to defend themselves. No. So they just let other armies get decimated by malaria. Yeah. Um, Mussolini drained the marshes in 1930. Well, in the 1930s. Sure. And that reduced Italian malarial fatalities by 99.8%. Holy cow. Between 1932 and 1939. Yeah. Must have been a relief until the Germans came in. So the Germans, <laughs> occupying Germans, carried out then the only known example of biological warfare in the 20th century Europe. In late 1943, the Nazis seized as much of the anti-malarial medicine quinine that they could. Yeah. Reversed the marsh draining pumps, opened the dikes, and brought the swamps back. So the Anopheles mosquitoes returned. Allied and German soldiers became sick. Italian civilians became dying, became dying, began dying. Is actually what I meant to say there? I Became I dying. Yeah. Is what I'm going to go with. Malarial deaths then spiked from 33 in 1939 to 55,000 in 1944. Wow. All right. Then the war ends. 1948, they just start spraying DDT everywhere. Yeah, and of course they do. And they conquer malaria again. Yeah. Don't worry. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Um... Yet, none of these effects on the old world is maybe as uh, big as what happens in the new world. Because the so-called Columbian Exchange occurs after 19, or 1492, pardon me, and it brings, you know, the terrible disease of smallpox, which you've likely already heard loads about, yeah. but also things like yellow fever and malaria, especially from the African slaves. Yeah. Yes. So that historian I mentioned, Timothy Weingard, um, says, quote, conservatively, there were 100 million indigenous people in the Western Hemisphere when Columbus got here. 250 years later, there were about 5 million, not 5, 5 million, um, 95% gone by disease, brutality, and murder. And even the last two don't kill the way disease does. Smallpox may have been the worst, but when you look at the early historical records, you see references to malaria and its telltale symptoms of the distended belly and engorged spleens. Um, so this epidemic disease in a population with no natural immunity really cleared the way for European colonization before the indigenous yeah. even had to see the Europeans. Yeah. Um, and they actually, these mosquito diseases ended up causing havoc for centuries after this. So the average survival time for a, I'm going to say white, I'm sorry, but it just, it's easiest, a white arrival mm-hmm. in Jamestown, Virginia... Um, for the two decades after its founding in 1607, 
Do you have any guess? How how long did they live on average after getting to, to Jamestown? The average person. I'm going to guess five years. Just under a year. Wow. Yeah. Uh, even more than two centuries after that, 500 workers died of malaria during the construction of the Rideau Canal, linking Ottawa and Kingston, Ontario. Timothy Weingard says, digging trenches and filling them with water is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. 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 Um, but after several, several generations, there was the eventual establishment of immunity in those settler populations. Right. And then the mosquitoes became somewhat more of an ally to the North Americans because European armies were sent over to quell rebellions right. and were taken out by the mosquitoes. And that was a crucial factor in the America's wars of independence and may have been the single greatest element um, in the successful slave insurrection against the French in 19th century Haiti. Okay. So, interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, this is where I kind of, like, lost my ability to write a good transition sentence. So we're just going to jump into what makes mosquito bites itchy. Let's I'm just, just jump like, there. I, I, I don't know. My brain stopped working. That's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what makes mosquito bites itch so darn much? I think this one might be common knowledge, so I'm going to say it anyways. Okay. This one is your own fault. Don't blame the mosquitoes for this. Uh, as you probably know, mosquitoes inject their saliva into the victim and its job is to be an anticoagulant, which keeps the blood flowing. Humans are allergic to some of the proteins in mosquito saliva. And that means even though that saliva is harmless, our immune system reacts to saliva... Poorly. Poorly. Like, by releasing histamine. Mm -hmm. uh, histamine, you would not be surprised to hear, is an amine. I'm not surprised by that, yeah. Which is an organic molecule based on ammonia, basically, NH3. Okay. English scientists George Barger and Henry H. Dale first isolate histamine from the plant fungus ergot in 1910. 1911 in animals. Um, plants produce histamine as well. For example, the stinging nettle. There's like histamine in those like hair-like structures on the nettle leaves, which is why they make you itch a lot. Okay. I'm glad we don't have them here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, histamine's also the irritating ingredient in the venom of most wasps and bees that irritates you. Yeah. Okay. Um, in humans, histamine is found in nearly all of our tissues. It's stored in mostly in something called mast cells, but also in basophils. It's a type of blood cell. Okay. I'm going to okay. believe you. Um, I just like this stuff, so I just went into it a little more in depth. So once it's released, histamine is going to do a lot of things in our bodies, like contract our smooth muscles. So those are like lungs, uterus, stomach, those types of places. Uh, dilate our blood vessels, stimulate gastric acid secretion, accelerate our heart rate. Why does it do those things? Um, it's basically to help more like white blood cells, plasma proteins, like immune system stuff arrive at the site of the perceived danger more quickly. Okay. Even though there's no danger in right. reality. Um, histamine also acts as a neurotransmitter, which means it carries chemical messages between nerve cells. It acts on the sensory nerve that perceives pain and itching, and that stimulus is transmitted to the brain as itch. Yep, makes sense. Yeah. Anyways, I'm off topic. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is mosquito bites are just another example of our body overreacting to nothing, like like all allergies. Um, 
But here's a transition sentence. Speaking of our immune systems. Okay. Do our bodies become immunized to mosquitoes? Oh. Is the question. Yeah, okay. That's a good question. Yeah. I'm going to guess no. I mean, not in any sort of useful way. I mean, we don't know. We did something in mice, though. We did a study. Um, okay. So, um, so they tested immunized mice, which were loaded up. They loaded them up with antibodies to recognize a mosquito saliva. And they found that the antibodies reacted with the insect saliva during the bite, and they formed noticeable clumps at the tips um, of the proboscis. And that clogged up the small blood vessels and stopped the mosquitoes from drinking from them. Um, but, you know, if they let the mosquito feed for however long it wanted to, it would just find a larger blood vessel, which was too big to be clogged by the tiny antibodies. Okay. Um, so possibly it makes it harder for mosquitoes to find a good blood vessel to feed from and maybe gives us more time to get them off, you know, notice them sure. and get them off of us maybe. But, but it wasn't a mm, quote-unquote cure. Not at all. Yeah. Might have been helpful, maybe. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. But you can't bite what you can't find, of course. Uh, true. So my next question is how mosquitoes find and then choose their victims. Mm-hmm. So... There's a variety of things mosquitoes use to home in. Uh, so they start from about 200 feet away, and they follow the carbon dioxide plumes that we exhale. And as they approach a little closer, they're going to start smelling the odors from our feet and underarms and skin. Yeah. And that's when they pick the right species, basically. Okay. Uh, and around 50 feet, they start to see dark silhouettes, basically. That's it. That's as good as their sight is. Um, then heat pools are going to guide them to where to land and taste receptors on their feet help them decide where to bite. Sure. But who to bite? It's a good question. Because they usually have so many choices. I'm sure everyone knows that person or is that person who gets all the mosquitoes landing on them. And then I'm that person that's like, that sucks. I think I got one bite. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... In the last year or two, we're finally seeing the study results to tell us why certain people are bitten more than others. One study, I mean, and I say year or two, like, their papers I'm going to talk about were published this year. So one study showed for the first time that mosquitoes can discriminate between multiple people in an area as large as, like, a skating rink, basically. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a pretty big area. Yeah, so this arena was connected to eight tents via air ducts. And the tents kind of the air ducts funneled the odors from each tent um, into this black heated disc. Okay. So there's a person in each tent. Yeah. So they all had their own odor. So basically, what they're doing is making discs with odor. So instead yeah. of landing on a person, they're going to land on these discs and think it's a person. Right, and then they can measure how many mosquitoes go to which discs. Right. So mosquitoes were four times more likely to land on the disc associated with the subject who was most attractive. Than okay. the least attractive subject. So there's a difference for sure. Okay. And then what they did was identify the chemicals in each subject's odor profile using special machinery that can separate the gases that make up the sample. Some sort of spectroscopy, I assume. Yeah, but we actually don't even know or have not even identified the things that make humans smell the way we do yet. So we kind of... That that was a struggle. Sure. <laughs> sure. So um, in the end... What we've kind of figured out is that mosquitoes, um, there are 15 airborne compounds that were present in all the subjects, but they're different concentrations for each 
subject. The mosquitoes are especially attracted to carboxylic acids, which is a class of fatty acids found in our sweat. Um, the scent is sometimes compared to rancid butter or cheese. Fun. Yeah. Um, we make... <laughs> Uh, we make these acids in, you know, the oily layer of our skin, um, but they're also made when microbes that live on our skin digest our secretions, basically. Okay. So, specifically, specifically, though, they found high attractiveness is associated with a relative abundance of butyric acid, isobutyric acid, and isovaleric acid. Fun fact, butyric acid, which was first discovered in rancid butter... That's the name. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, There's a connection there. Yeah. Um, it is what gives vomit its acidic taste and smell. Oh, good. And it's also what gives American milk chocolate its uniquely cheesy, grossy, cheesy yeah. taste. Yeah. Yeah. Hershey. Hershey is especially fond of that taste. Okay. Yeah. Um, just so you know, vomit equals Hershey. Yeah. Sorry, Hershey. No, not. Um, so, the least preferred had a whole body odor that was depleted of carboxylic acids and enriched with the monoterpenoid eucalyptol. Okay, so it seems like our skin microbiome is playing a big role in how attractive we are to mosquitoes. Okay? Okay. But it's important to remember that our skin biome is affected by what we choose to put on our skin. Right, yeah, of course. Okay, so, you know, personal care products, soaps, shampoos, perfumes. Lotions. Yeah, they're going to add plant-related volatile organic compounds to our signatures, okay? So then researchers compared the number of times a mosquito lands on a nylon sleeve that has been worn on the unwashed arm versus the washed arm of somebody. Okay. It's the same somebody. And then they repeated the experiment several times with different brands of soaps. They used Dial, they used Native... Dove and Simple Truth. I think those are the four. Um, and then different subjects, of course. So in some cases, washing increased the number of mosquito landings, which meant that that soap was going to amplify that person's attractiveness. But it's not consistent. So Dove and Simple Truth soaps made some people more enticing, some people less enticing. Native soaps seem to decrease all people's attractiveness to mosquitoes. Okay. If Native wants to give me money for saying that, then that's cool. <laughs> okay. Good job, Native Soap. So a soap's chemical contents, though, might be less important than how the contents react with your own individual body chemistry. Right. All the soaps were largely dominated by limonene, um, like as a compound that's known to be a mosquito repellent. But three of the four soaps, like I said, not Native, actually increase mosquitoes' attraction a lot of the time. Right. So just because they had the same components doesn't mean no, the same not. results happened. Um, so next, they analyzed, analyzed the nylon sleeves from that initial experiment to pick out um, the combination of chemicals that were associated with the attraction and the repulsion. So they used that to design an attractive mix and a repellent mix. And were um, they successful in, in being able to do that? Right. So they tested them with a fifth subject that wasn't part of the study right. in the first part. And they put the sleeve on with the attractive mix and the sleeve on with the control. Mm-hmm. And they went to the attractive mix every time. The control just had mineral oil on it. And then they did the same thing with the control on a repellent. And the mosquitoes went to the control every time. Okay. So it sounds like they actually had some success there. Yeah. So 
what they hope to do is use tools like machine learning to say, based on the smell you currently have, we can figure out which soap you should use to avoid mosquitoes. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. What? That's so cool. It's you seem the, disappointed. You're no, like, it's oh, very cool. Is that the end of it? Okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> no, it's just when you're using machine learning, you got to be able to like provide it the variables. And I'm trying to think of how you give the variables of a someone sent to. That I'm sure it's possible. We show them the scent and what has worked and do it a lot of times. Yeah, fills in the gaps. Yeah. So what are the best ways to repel mosquitoes is where I'm going to go next. Okay. Um, so for a long time, we really thought we had it right with DDT. Mm-hmm. Uh, DDT was first made in 1874. It's prepared... I don't, this is only for you, Everett. Perfect. It is prepared by the reaction of chloral with chlorobenzene in the presence of sulfuric acid. Okay. Okay. It's chemistry. I just thought I'd put that in there for you. Okay. But its insecticidal properties weren't discovered until 1939 by a Swiss chemist. Uh, During and after World War II, DDT was found to be effective against lice, fleas, mosquitoes, the Colorado potato beetle, the spongy moth. Human health. A bunch of other... No, not then. And a bunch of other insects that attacked valuable crops. That was half of what people wanted it for. Yeah. Um, It was widely used. But then a bunch of insects rapidly developed resistance. Yeah. As they are wont to do. Um, and as a re- result of repeated spraying, DDT accumulated in soils in surprisingly large amounts. Um, 10 to 112 kilograms per hectare. I don't know what that means either. I just thought I'd say it. Hmm. Um, its effects on wildlife greatly increased as it became incorporated into the food chain. So it's so stable that it... It's called bioaccumulation. Yeah. You know, it a little bit in every little animal, but big animals have to eat lots of little animals. Yeah. And your body doesn't process it out. Or yes, at least not it's rapidly. Fat. No, it dissolves into fat and stays in your body. Yeah. Um, so, you know, animals that eat insects were really some of the most affected. Songbirds and birds of prey like eagles, hawks, and falcons were, were like the most severely affected. We lost a lot of eagles. Yeah. Um, so... Use of DDT began to be restricted in the 1960s, thanks in part to public awareness raised by Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring. Um, DDT was banned outright in the 1970s in many countries. Uh, it is still used in some places, um, which is... Crazy. The, n- no. Following the guidelines of the WHO and other oh, trees, really? it is still used in places where it's use to stop malaria is considered more beneficial mm. than its harm. Okay. So in very few places in Africa where they really need it, basically. And, okay, I think I understand. And we yeah. are hoping for that not to be the case anymore, but there is risk-benefit analysis done all the time trying to trying to see, basically. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so how do we do better than that? <laughs> right now, bed nets lace with repellents are really the best solution in malaria endemic areas. Um, But what about you, the average person taking a hike through the woods? Scientists do have some preliminary ideas. Uh, Try products with a coconut scent. Coconut? Yes. That's the aroma associated with the soap that more consistently deterred mosquitoes. Interesting. Native soap. (laughs) Okay. since it might depend on your personal body odor, you should experiment with different soaps to see which one works best for you. So soaps are probably as important as the repellent you choose. 
Um, scientists also recommend adopting the strategies that mosquito researchers use while they're in the field. Wear long sleeves and light colored clothes. Mosquitoes are attracted to dark colors. Okay. Under their eyesight's real bad. Yeah. Um, but the best defense we have against mosquitoes remains DEET, unfortunately. Hmm. And I don't say unfortunately because it's not safe to use. I just mean it's because it's been around for 60 years and we don't have any newer, better yeah. things. Scientists think that single compound solutions like DEET are on their way out and we need to start combining things, basically. Um, but DEET is a really, really good protectant and it is safe to use as directed. And a big benefit of using DEET if you're out in the woods is that it also works great for ticks, which oh, you do not a, want. Yeah, that's And a they also pass sure. a lot of diseases. And one day I'll do a ticks episode. Oh, I'm sure you I'm will. excited. Okay. Um, natural repellents, lemon, eucalyptus oil, they can work a little bit, but they're not great. Effective, yeah. Effectiveness wise. Uh, what else can we do against mosquitoes? Well, there's an interesting thought that there is now some evidence mosquitoes can be trained. Oh, it turns out that slapping a mosquito, or, you know, at a mosquito, uh, makes the insect learn to associate the near-death encounter with your smell. Okay. And they'll avoid you in the future. Okay, good. I know. So it really only works, like, I don't know, for the two weeks that mosquito was alive and near your house or something in your own backyard. But right. um, but there are more conclusions near the end of this, so I'll just, I'll just tell you. Okay. Okay. So this study appeared in 2018 in Current Biology. It was the first time anyone showed mosquitoes could, I don't know, learn something, remember anything. Yeah. Um, the team found that mosquitoes avoided that scent, the scent of you, for more than 24 hours after the SWAT attempt. Um, that is as powerful or more powerful than, you know, DEET. Hmm. So because learned associations are linked to the brain chemical dopamine, they tested the effect again, but on mosquitoes where they had disabled the dopamine channels. Right. And sure enough, that group of insects wasn't able to learn. Just so, not at all. Right. Okay. So now that we know that some compounds trigger this memory avoidance thing, um, scientists are thinking, could we not maybe find this like compound and put it into a repellent like DEET with DEET, like DEET and this like memory component that some something that would trigger this avoidance memory in the mosquitoes, some right. dopamine-like thing, and the DEET together. <laughs> As one. Yeah. Um, and here's another solution, which is Marlon Brando's island to the rescue. Perfect. Uh, Marlon Brando apparently just loved this one Polynesian island atoll of Tetiaroa, and he bought it in 1967. And now it's home to one of the most successful mosquito control efforts on Earth. Very good. So the target is a mosquito called Aedes polynesiensis, which is invasive, though, on that atoll. So a little less worried about eradicating them. Yeah. That species, though, does pass on dengue, chikungunya, zika. All, all the favorites. Yeah. So the solution was actually quite simple. Introduce male mosquitoes that'll mate with and sterilize the wild females, um, which would, you know, make the eggs non-viable after a few generations of population collapses. Right. Very interesting. So the premise is that up to 60% of insect species carry a harmless type of bacteria called Wolbachia in their cytoplasm. Okay. I don't, I don't know what Wolbachia is, but... It's the bacteria. Okay. It's the name of the bacteria. Great. It's a... Great sounding name for bacteria. Um, perfect. 
Okay. Um, the key here, though, is that different insect populations have different strains of Wolbachia. So when a male mosquito, for instance, infected with Wolbachia strain A, mates with a female that has Wolbachia strain B, the fertilized eggs will fail to develop as a result of something called cytoplasmic incompatibility. Okay. Great. So at the beginning of this project, the team on Tetiaroa set beta traps, they caught large amounts of wild mosquitoes, they gave them antibiotics and killed the naturally occurring Wolbachia. Then they reinfected them with the strain from a different population that they wanted them to have. Then they let those treated mosquitoes breed and worked only from that population. Now they have a captive population with the strains that they want. Right. And they, so, so what they do is when new pupa um, emerge in their lab, they have this like mechanical sorter that separates the males out from the females sure. by, by size. I was, I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah. The males are smaller in this species. Right. Which is not always the case for mosquitoes. I'm sure you've seen. Anyways. Yeah. Samples then, you know, they, they make sure that they're not, they test every whatever, one out of every 10,000 to make sure they're not pulling females. You know, they're good. Good to go. They release the ones that they, you know, into the wild. And yeah. None of the fertilized eggs hatch. So from egg to adult, that process took them just over a week. Well, that's pretty quick. Six months after the project began, they had eradicated Aedes polynesiensis from one of the um, islets of the atoll. Wow. Right. So now related methods are being tried all over the world, um, all based on this research on... Well, owned, the island owned by Brando's estate. He's not alive anymore, but... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but speaking of, you know, killing them off, we've, you know, been doing that for quite a while in a number of ways. Yeah. Uh, classical sterile insect technique, which is called SIT, uh, uses radiation to sterilize them. But that's been used since the 1950s for lots of insects, like fruit flies and the screw worm fly. Um, so SIT uses radiation to sterilize the males, basically with the same radiation found in x-rays. And then they release them regularly to mate with the wild females, and the eggs don't hatch, and you collapse the population that way. Yeah. Um, a new way to do this type of thing seems to be by using CRISPR technology. Of course. If you hadn't heard of CRISPR, it's uh, our humanity's most powerful gene Genome editing tool. Very impressive. If you're interested at all, it stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeat. I didn't remember all those words, but okay. (laughs) I remembered CRISPR, though. Yeah. So in 2018, scientists at London's Imperial College announced they had managed to use CRISPR to exterminate captive malaria-bearing mosquitoes in seven generations. It was the first ever annihilation of an animal population through genetic manipulation. Um, so genetically modified mosquitoes can be mass produced in a lab to, for instance, carry what's called a self-limiting gene, which prevents female mosquitoes from surviving into adulthood. Okay. So in this case, it's not like the larva wouldn't hatch, but the offspring wouldn't really be viable or at least the female offspring, offspring, which is the important part. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, there are ethical questions when it comes to eradicating mosquitoes. Well, I think there's probably, or should be ethical questions in the eradicating really any species of anything. Right. Like there are some scientists that kind of come across being like, there is literally nothing the mosquito does that no other animal does. Like, 
but what about like feeding something in the food chain above it? Right. So, so that's the debate. The debate is like, there's tons of little creatures that could step in and do this. Like they don't do one job that nothing else does. Okay. But like, what? We have no idea what would happen. So here are some of the arguments. Are mosquitoes necessary? Um, like I said before, the mosquitoes being killed off on Brando's Island or an invasive species. So there was little concern there about messing with the natural order of things. Right. Um, but, you know, the ones that cause malaria in Africa. Like, I mean, the, no. Those have always... Always. Those have been there longer than we have. Right. They can be an important part of some food webs, like you're saying. They're the food source for fish, turtles, dragonflies, migratory songbirds, bats, etc., um, they're particularly important to the tundra ecosystem, like Arctic tundra. Uh, for a few short weeks in the summer, they hatch in extraordinary numbers there, creating like visible clouds of mosquitoes and a very mm. rich food supply for migratory birds that come all yeah. the way up to the north to exploit this. Which makes so sense. if they showed up and they weren't there, there would be an issue. Yeah. Um, mosquitoes also probably, we think, impact the migration routes of caribou. A small change in their path could have major consequences in an Arctic valley through which thousands of caribou now migrate. They trample the ground, they eat lichen, they transport nutrients, they feed wolves. Yeah, right. Etc. Um, they Mosquitoes act as pollinators and decomposers. They're important pollinators for plants such as the goldenrods and for orchids. One's called a monkey face orchid that hmm. mosquitoes pollinate. And it's kind of cool. You should look up a picture of it. It, it looks cool. Um, mosquito larvae are also an important part of, um, like, for instance, the biome of the pitcher plant. They feed on insect waste products and they provide nitrogen to the plant. Okay. Um, beyond that, it's like how we're, you know, killing a bunch of things in the Amazon that we never knew were there. And we're like, what could the medicinal benefits be? Yeah. Anyways, so same thing. Anticoagulants are an important category of drugs. Um, they're used to prevent or, you know, maybe treat deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, stroke, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and chemicals found in the mouth parts of mosquitoes and other bloodsuckers like leeches, but definitely mosquitoes could help us develop better, cheaper, of course, safer drugs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the biggest thing really is like, how could we possibly know what would happen? Before we did it, right? We can't we know can't, what would happen. Yeah. And therefore, it makes it a very dangerous proposition to go out there and um, and just do what we want. Yeah. So, if we say we shouldn't be messing with nature too much, like we shouldn't be eradicating the mosquitoes, what steps can we take with our current science technology? Um, so, scientists around the world saw what the team on Brando's Island were doing with the Wolbachia bacteria. And they kind of found other ways to use it that don't involve getting rid of the mosquitoes. Okay. Just controlling for an outcome. So in Australia, a similar program uses the Wolbachia for disease control by introducing the Wolbachia bacteria into Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. Um, Rather than creating infertile insects, the bacteria actually inhibits the growth of the viruses that they carry. Right. And makes the adults incapable of transmitting them to the bite victims. That's very cool. Because Wolbachia don't naturally occur in Aedes aegypti. Okay. Because if they already did, then this wouldn't be. They wouldn't be transmitting already. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense, yeah. So the team releases both males and females to mate freely throughout the wild. Um, and spreads that bacteria to other, like, 
Aedes aegypti yeah. in the wild. Which then reduces the amount of infection of these other diseases to humans in the area. Right. So trials of this method took place in areas in both Australia and Indonesia. And local transmission of dengue in those areas was completely eliminated. Completely eliminated? In those areas of the trials. Wow. In those countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just still. That's incredible. Um, in Brazil, dengue... And, you know, yellow fever and these things have been uh, on the rise, like dramatically on the rise. Um, And so they're building a mosquito factory for a similar project. It's slated to open in 2024. Soon. And they would like to produce 5 billion mosquitoes a year to be released across Brazil. Um, So the mosquitoes with Wolbachia won't be able to transmit dengue, chikungunya, Zika, and yellow fever. Yeah, all the hits. Which would be huge. Yeah. Still not malaria. We're still having... Mm. Malaria is an issue. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm gonna... I plan on spending a large amount of the episode next time talking about malaria because it's really... I don't want to say cool because that makes me sound heartless. The plasmodium parasite... Is interesting. Is so interesting. I mean, there's a reason we still haven't come up with a great malaria vaccine. There is one now, though. Really? It came out a few years ago. Anyways, we'll talk about that next episode. So I'm you sure really will. don't want to miss. You don't want to miss the next episode in which we talk about d- disease, horrible, horrible <laughs> disease that devastates humanity. Yeah. And I will not sound cheerful about at all. Okay, good. I promise. It's a deal. I would like to remind everyone once again that we do have an email, should you wish to say anything, really. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, episode, suggestions. Mm-hmm. It is teachmesomething4, the number 4, at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, and I would like to say thank you once again for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.